Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And it's our last episode of season one. That went super fast, didn't it, ladies? Oh my goodness. I can't even believe that we started this incredible podcast in the middle of a pandemic and just the sheer number of women who have come on the show to talk about issues that so many Americans and that we are all so passionate about has just, it's been so uplifting and I'm so glad that we've done this together. Well, and think about where we were when we started this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) I mean, you guys, we were literally watching a president who was trying to tell us that during a global pandemic, we should inject bleach to where we are now, which I think all of us are reassured that we have a leader who's taking things seriously. But I think we've come a long way though we have so much farther to go. It has certainly been a journey, and I don't know about all of you, and I'm speaking to our listeners at the same time, is that this podcast you know, really helped me get through this time, spending this time with you two ladies, sharing this conversation with our listeners, and also meeting so many incredible women where you're just you feel fortified and reassured that we have a really bright future ahead of us and that the work continues. That's so true. We kind of do have that time capsule of the pandemic in season one. Um, (laughs) It's like, you know, when you're talking about the issues we covered from a female perspective, so many of us were homeschooling our kids. In some cases, we still are. We are, you know, balancing the caring for loved ones. My mom went through breast cancer, our family's uh, change in business. You know, it's a real pivotal time for America. And I couldn't think more highly of having women's voices lead at that change, lead and be the forefront of the change that we need, because it turns out we still need change. And so much of this pandemic highlighted women and the strength and the resiliency of women across the board. And it's been great to highlight a lot of those stories with the two of you, very resilient and lovely women. Um, Before we jump into the conversation with our guest, um, I just want to give a quick shout out to all the military service members and family members across the globe. It is Military Appreciation Month, so we just thank you and we honor you for all of your service. I think a lot of our listeners may have heard, but of course, um, Darian, you were active duty military and we're grateful. You know, I think what gives me hope is that there are so many women from the military, from uh, activism, from even the Republican Party. You see women stepping up. And I do see that our parties are not aligned on everything right now. I think that bringing more women to the forefront can only be good. Whether it was mothers at home, whether it was in the military, again, thank you for your service, Darian. And whether it was on the front lines as health workers, and even creating our vaccine, over and over, we would hear about women being in leadership positions to develop the vaccine. So it's only fitting that our last guest of the season is Amanda Nugent, who has been a leader on so many different levels, and especially during this time, which is AAPI Heritage Month. 
Amanda is a phenomenal woman to round out our first season. She's a CEO, an activist, and a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. So let's go right to our interview. Amanda Nugent is a social entrepreneur, civil rights activist, and the CEO and founder of RISE, a nonprofit organization that fights for the rights of sexual violence survivors worldwide. Amanda was involved in proposing and drafting the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act, which was the 21st bill in modern U.S. history to pass unanimously through Congress. In 2019, Amanda was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and has been named to Forbes 30 Under 30 and received the Nelson Mandela Changemaker Award. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we are absolutely thrilled to have you on Pod as a Woman, especially this month, which is AAPI Heritage Month. We've talked on the show before about turning our pain into power, and your story is the ultimate example of this. Can you share with our listeners why you started Rise in 2014 and what you've been able to accomplish since then? Sure. Yeah, there's a long tradition of people taking their painful living truths and channeling that into justice. And so I joined that by penning my own rights into existence. Um, Nearly seven years ago, I was studying to become an astronaut. So something really different from what I'm doing now. Uh, Unfortunately, like 1.3 billion people around the planet, I was raped. And I remember going to the hospital, getting a rape kit examination, which is both a life-saving medical attention, but also the forensic collection of evidence because the crime scene is your body. My exam was six hours long. Most people don't know that it takes three to seven hours. And I remember walking out of the hospital and being handed a taxi voucher to go back to the place where I was raped. And... I soon found out afterwards that there were all of these holes within our criminal justice system that really wasn't fair. The system was stacked against survivors. And I remember walking into my local area rape crisis center. There weren't enough seats for us in the waiting room. And I thought to myself, my story is not mine alone. And that I had a choice. I could accept the injustice or rewrite the law. And one of these things is a lot better than the other. And so I rewrote it. You really did. And as Alejandra mentioned in the introduction, you were integral in passing the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act that President Obama signed into law in 2016. So coming from that experience that you just described, which sounds so painful and so um, it's a botch, it's a hole in the system. What did it mean for you personally to have such an important piece of legislation passed to protect survivors? And what has the impact been since? Yeah, I remember when the Senate passed um, the law, I told my team to go to a restaurant that we were going to celebrate at. And I said, you know, I'll meet you there. And I went to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. If you're in D.C., you'll know that um, across the reflection pool, you can see the Capitol. And if anyone were to have seen me then, I would have looked quite funny because I was both laughing hysterically, but also sobbing. Um, And it was the most grounded experience that I've ever had, which is to have this incredibly painful moment just become justice. Justice looks different for different people. Mm -hmm. But for me, I had no idea when I started this journey that it would translate into a law that would grant 
25 million rape survivors. Now, 34 laws later, 85.1 million rape survivors' civil rights. Um, and it was just um, just this opening. Um, I felt like my soul was was seen uh, that day. And if justice and democracy had a feeling, it would have been that. Wow. It. Recently, you posted on Instagram about this letter that you wrote to your younger self, and you spoke so eloquently in it about how scary it was and how you might not see justice in your lifetime. And this kind of seems a step in that direction. And you're seeing, like you said, 34 more states adopt laws to protect rape survivors. Are you more optimistic now? Absolutely. I think that there has to be a little bit of optimism if you're engaged within activism. And it's because you're fighting for a future that you believe can be real, whether or not it happens in your lifetime. And so I am so optimistic, not only because I've seen these laws happen, because it has been possible through a lot of grassroots organizing, but also because I see my colleagues who are activists themselves work so hard in the field every single day. Um, And I, I do think that even though the world can seem like it's burning all the time and it's a dumpster fire that we actually can make a difference. Well, for so many of our listeners, you're so right, Amanda, so many um, women and men have been victim of sexual assault. And um, I think, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily know their rights. So what did change and what more do we need to do? Thank you for asking that. So the things that are in the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights includes really basic common sense things. So for instance, the right to not have to pay for your rape kit. So in some states, kits are still being charged. It can cost up to $2,000. And we have heard anecdotally creditors calling their families um, to try to get victims to pay. That's really wrong. Um, Another right is the right to not have your evidence be destroyed before the statute of limitations. Super basic. Um, You know, uh, a lot of people ask me, well, is this the case for other types of crimes? Absolutely not. In murder cases, evidence is kept. That's how cold cases are solved. Um, Another right is the right to be notified of your rights. Super basic, but really critical. And that's because, for instance, Um, It is best to get a rape kit done within 72 hours of the assault because, well, the evidence is biological um, and biological things can decay. So um, survivors should be able to know which hospitals they can go to, what resources they can access because time is of the essence. That's really helpful. As a testament to the impact of your work, you were named a 2019 Nobel Peace Prize nominee for your work protecting civil rights for sexual assault and rape survivors. For those of us who don't know anything about that process, what is that like? Yeah, so um, there are a couple types of people who can nominate. Um, The most common one are bodies of governments. Uh, And so when I got the call (laughs) that a Democratic and a Republican um, Congress uh, woman was going to two congresswomen, Democrat and Republican, were going to nominate me. Um, I literally was on my way to meet up with some of the activists that we had you know, collectively organized with, and I was in San Francisco, and it was like lightning struck me. <laughs> it's 
So my eyes are dilating. I forgot where I was for a moment. Um, and uh, it was a really out of body experience because again, what a, a amazing thing to happen. Um, and it changed my life. So I'm really, really grateful. To switch gears now to the pandemic, the number of anti-Asian hate crimes that we're seeing has dramatically increased during this time. There was a recent LA Times survey I wanted to point out, if you hadn't seen it, that found that 73% of Asian American residents worry about being victims of physical violence or a hate crime. You've been very vocal about racism and violence targeting your community, especially recently. So what can we and our listeners do to be allies in your work? There are so many things that people can do. The first is to know how powerful you are and that a nation state is only, well, what a group of people have decided to live up to. And so if there are values that we aspire to, values of equality under the law, the promise of this country, then we absolutely should live up to that. And that includes making sure that Asian Americans are thought of in the discourse of anti-racism. The first thing that people can do is just educate themselves. You can do that by diversifying your social media feed, following Asian educators, activists, um, nonprofits. Um, You can have conversations one-on-one with your family members or loved ones. You don't have to go out and plan a rally, right? So uh, it really does start from where you are. Uh, Now, of course, there are some incredible resources I'd love to point people to, one of them being Mm -hmm. Hollaback, which is being able to identify how to be an ally when you see moments of racism happen. They have a great resource. Uh, It's called Five Ds. And um, check, check them out. You know, there's a long history of anti-Asian hate in this country that's been, I think, um, too often probably whitewashed. In fact, even in California, I mean, it was um, significant anti-Asian hate early. They banned acupuncture. I mean, if you look at the history, there's just always been these stereotypes too and I remember like you know when Andrew Yang was running for president he was like bringing up some of these stereotypes that were really in so many ways detrimental because I think when we push for equality we need to know that we all have to be equal which means misleading stereotypes don't help um so what what are some of those you know like what should we do to dispel stereotypes to reflect on history and um help people make progress one of the core issues that have contributed to the violence against the AAPI community is undoubtedly the erasure of our humanity the erasure of our history. So when we look at the systems of oppression, right, um, especially around narrative building, who gets to define what it means to be an American? Who gets to define mm-hmm. what it means to be uh, a citizen? Right? Um, those structures are uh, Hollywood, mainstream media, our federal government, our education system. These are a few. There was a study in 2009 that showed that some federal agencies don't even include Asians in their definitions of racial minorities. Um, It's really upsetting. Uh, But um, over and over again, you know, uh, Hollywood has uh, this stereotype 
of the China doll, the vixen, or the perpetual foreigner stereotype. Um, all of these things contribute to the dehumanization of uh, our humanity, uh, therefore treating us like objects, therefore increasing the violence. When that shooting in Atlanta happened that targeted Asian women, even if the perpetrator said, oh, this isn't racism, it's because I had a sex addiction, um, so many of my Asian female friends texted one another saying that's that's uh, clearly racism. And that's because when we look at issues, it's not only in one lens, right? We live in a very complex world. Of course, it's intersectional. Well, this past weekend, we saw the New York Times run a full page ad with a really iconic portrait of you um, to encourage the AAPI visibility pledge. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, in order to combat the invisibility, the erasure of our history, of our heritage, and critically of our contributions um, as Americans, uh, my organization, RISE, has pushed out a campaign launched this May um, for Asian American Heritage Month that focuses on visibility. As a part of that, we partnered with Amplifier um, and uh, the New York Times ran a portrait saying, I'm an American, uh, and it encourages people to learn more about AAPI history. And if people want to support that pledge, where should they go? They can go to aapipledge.us. Great. So I also saw news, you've been very busy lately, that the Asian American Foundation was just founded and you sit on the advisory council along with Lisa Ling and Condoleezza Rice and many others. Your mission is to serve the AAPI community in their pursuit of, quote, belonging and prosperity that is free from discrimination, slander and violence. So I want to talk about the word belonging for a minute, because that's a unique word to include in a mission statement. Why is belonging such an important part of your mission? Well, I think that, honestly, we have always been a part of the American story um, because, again, there is so much rhetoric around America being strong because of its diversity. So belonging in this sense is not only trying to seek acceptance, it's also about recognizing that we've already been here. We've been doing the work. We built the railroads that connected this country um, and so much more. Um, you know, it was only recently that I learned that KKK had organized campaigns to target the Vietnamese community in America. This wasn't taught to me at all. You know, when I found out about it, it was actually in a Netflix show um, about food. Uh, it was ugly, delicious. And it really hurt to learn so something that was about my community um, that was from a show rather than from my education system, right? And so when we talk about belonging, again, who gets to define that? Uh, you know, I think it's about taking that back. We were all in the Obama orbit. And I remember when President Trump won, it was pretty painful for most of us who wanted to see progress. But President Obama delivered that speech in Chicago where he talked about moving two steps forward, one step back. And I keep, I guess, being really hopeful, especially about all of the young people who were in that administration, because they haven't all had their impact yet. 
What's your optimistic view of what we can make America into that's a view that's, you know, the America we all want? I think it's um, a shared story, right? I'll I'll just um, uh, describe the first time that I talked to politicians. It was many hours with people who were brutally honest to me. I was no one then. Um, I was a rape survivor. I was fighting for my rights. And I remember one politician telling me, oh, this isn't going to help me win my reelection, but I sympathize with your rape. And it was really brutal. And I went home and I cried because it was really hard. And the next morning, as a pathological optimist, I got up and I went back to the U.S. Senate. And in my ride, I met this man who was kind of intimidating. He didn't really talk to me. Um, But at the end of the ride, he saw that I was going to the Senate. So he asked me why. And I told him. And this once intimidating man started crying, just bawling, just tears rolling down his face. And he turned to me. And when he stopped the car, he said, my daughter was also raped. Uh, And what you went through, she also went through. Um, And he said, can I shake your hand? Thank you so much for fighting for my daughter. Has anyone told you that they love you today? I love you. And I'll never forget that dad. And so I I remember this story when I need hope because it reminds me that even when things are really rough, the impact that we do in this belief of a more perfect union, the belief that people can find the better angels of their nature, I think that um, we are able, if we are able to just remember that things will get better, that people do appreciate it, that it's more than just the immediate group of people. It's also their loved ones. It's everyone. And that we absolutely have the ability to shape our future, that it's up to every generation to define what a more perfect union is, I think will be okay. Amanda, you just, you have the most incredible and amazing story. And the anecdote that you just shared is so inspirational. And I just think as a woman in this generation of advocacy, looking back now through all of the experiences, through everything that you have been through, what would you have told yourself as that young woman who was stepping into such a, a scary kind of world? That it gets better. It yeah. really, it gets better. And that there is joy waiting for you at the end of this, during this. You know, when I started my activism journey, to be very honest, I was fueled by rage. I was so mad. I felt betrayed. The worst thing that happened to me wasn't being raped. It was being betrayed by the criminal justice system where they, you know, tell victims to go and to be met with something that was like a Kafka-esque labyrinth, a game from Saw. And after a while, that rage petered out and it turned into, into hope. I think hope is different from a dream. A dream, you know, you you can have, um, but in order for you to have hope, it has to be grounded in some kind of reality and some kind of chance that it can happen. Um, And I've seen that over and over in the power of organizing. Uh, So I would tell my younger self uh, that the most powerful tool we have is our voice and that no one is invisible when we demand to be seen. That is so true. And you have inspired so much hope for us. So thank you so much, Amanda Nugent, CEO and founder of Rise. Thank you for being with us and for being our very last guest of the season. Thanks, Amanda. 
you guys, I just loved hearing from her because she is standing up and fighting for rights. And I think that is what Pod as a Woman has been about from the beginning, that we have to create an inclusive society in which everyone has a voice to stand up and fight for their rights and that they know how to do it. And I love that she shared her story. And made way for so many other victims of sexual assault and victims now of AAPI violence to have a space to feel safe to share their share their story and their experience and just that she remains so hopeful and so optimistic for the future and isn't letting anything slow her down from advocating for her community is just so incredibly powerful. What a gift she left us with, with her vulnerability and her words. And to end this podcast season one with a a message of hope was perfect because that's where we started and we kind of have gone on this wild ride together. And here we are at the other side of almost the other side of the pandemic, but certainly in a very different political reality. And we're left with this message of continued hope. We started with a one generation of women leaders with Dr. Jill Biden. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, like, Amanda is the kind of generation that I am sure that she would want to pass the torch on to keep fighting the good fight. I 100% agree with you. And as we are in the process of closing, we want to give our potus and shout out to the same crew. And it goes to... All, All of you. Of you. <laughs> you, you, listeners. you, 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 you. <laughs> thank you, you so much for all of your support for season one of Pot as Woman. This has been an amazing journey and to have your love and support and your feedback as we have gone through the process of 37 weeks, I think we're at 37 or 38 oh, weeks. Uh, who even knows, but it's been a long time. <laughs> and honestly, we couldn't have done it without you guys. And I mean, even gotten through this time, just knowing that all of you are out there and that we have each other every week to touch base and take a temperature of how we're feeling has been so meaningful. So thank you for being with us on this ride. Well, and I know that we all have a summer where we Uh, finally, after this pandemic, get to kind of, you know, really think about the world that we want to create. And we'd love to connect with you on social media. So I know um, I'm at Johanna Masca on all social media platforms and would love to connect with our listeners. I am the same across the board at Darian Page. And my handle is a Campo Verde, also across all my social media channels. And as always, Pod is a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a beautiful summer. I think we can all now confidently say Pod is a Woman. <laughs> <laughs>